Hello and welcome to episode number 40 of the Hobbies and Happiness podcast where we talk all about the hobby that makes us happy, tabletop gaming. I'm one of your hosts, Dan. And I'm Jim. And today we're talking with Team Covenant's Stephen Woolley. All right, so today on the podcast, we are joined by Stephen Woolley of Team Covenant. Stephen, how are you today, sir? I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course, of course. So, uh, Stephen, um, for those that don't know you, I'll, I'll let I'll let you give your give uh, give an intro to uh, to our audience for those of for those of our audience who do not know who you and Team Covenant are. So, can you tell us a little bit about uh, you and uh, what you're doing with Team Covenant? Yeah, I'll give you the the quick origin story. I've I've tried to get it down uh, to a short <laughs> amount of time, but uh, essentially. Zach and I, I would consider us co-founders, although Zach is the actual founder of the company. He and I grew up together playing tabletop games, how we became friends. That's how we discovered each other in another friend group in a very small town of Chelsea, Oklahoma, about 2,000 people. Um, He kind of ran the scene there. We met when we were like 13, started playing Pokemon, um, got really big into the Star Wars trading card game. It kind of went off from there. We never really hit magic through our journey, which was interesting it was always kind of we were playing the sideways games of like all the things that were you know, like on the side of <laughs> the store rather than like actually yeah. the the big magic <laughs> events. Yeah. And so we kind of always had a just a love for kind of the second tier games or like the kind of obscure games. Um, one such game that we got into was the Spoils. Uh, it's a little trading card game that had a few sets uh, early on, and it was trying to rival Magic by doing these like big events, and they were going to do this big prize cruise. It was kind of that the end of the 90s gold rush, 2000s era. And uh, they kind of brought it back and did this big thing, and we were like, okay, sign us up. So we were playing that, and then Zach was like, hey, I'm in college. I was in college in Stillwater at the time. And he was like, I've got this game, The Spoils, you should check it out. I've actually started selling it on an eBay Pro store uh, on the internet. And I was like, oh, the internet. That's kind of a, still a new thing, um, especially for commerce. And so he was like, yeah, it's going really well. Like, I think I'm able to make enough to pay for my collection of spoils so that I can play in these events. And so he was like, if I sell enough online, I can buy you know, booster boxes and have the cards I need to play. Um, and then I'm out zero dollars. And I was like, well, that's a good idea. Could we, you know, could we do the same so I could also uh, play with these cards? He's like, yeah, maybe. Uh, and so <laughs> it started scaling up from there. We started selling spoils cards, um, started talking to some of the the big players at the time and getting them to do guest blogs on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kind of kept moving. We both finished college. And about the time I was finishing college, it was at the point where things were big enough with the online store that it was conceivable that it could be my sole job out of college. And I came out of college with like a philosophy degree. So it, it wasn't like a, a career fair was, you know, kind of knocking down my door waiting for me to, to sign up. So I said, well, I'll give that a shot. So I lived in another small town called Claremore, Oklahoma for a while uh, with two other people, had extremely low bills, extremely low rent, and was able to uh, make it work on like a $500 a month, $600 a month paycheck. That lasted for a number of years, and then we moved to Tulsa and started thinking about, as it kind of got bigger and bigger, started thinking about opening a local retail store, which we did, I believe, in 2012, Um, and it was strange, and we didn't have Magic or any of the collectible card games. Our biggest community was actually the Game of Thrones living card game at the time. I had like 20 to 30 person tournaments every week for Game of Thrones, which was crazy. Um, 
And we're essentially kind of scraping by and figuring out the model and figuring out how we wanted to do a store. And from there, we've continued to scale online. We've continued to scale locally. We moved into a second space, which is a bigger space for the second iteration of our local store. During the pandemic, uh, that closed because we were five years into our lease at the time, and we were having to either renew the lease in like April of 2020, or we were going to leave and, you know, go find another space. And we didn't want to renew another five-year lease at this place, given that we didn't know when we could actually have Mm. people in our store again. It was very uneasy during that pandemic timeline. Mm. So we decided to move to a temporary office. We're now working on the third iteration of our local store, and that is in progress with architects right now. We've been able to actually save up enough to buy land and build from the ground up Mm. in Tulsa. So that's the stuff that we're currently working on. We have the land acquired, working with architects. In the meantime, the online side, we've pivoted to streaming during the pandemic, and that has gone really well for us. Um, And it's been amazing to kind of connect and build a different kind of community online. Um, Got the Discord and community platforms uh, running. We've added a number of games. Flesh and Blood was very successful for us, um, as well as like Sky Tear and Ashes. We did the PDP model with Ashes Reborn. We just launched Soulforge Fusion, another unique deck style game a la Keyforge. And then we've got a few more coming this year, assuming that that all goes to plan. So (laughs) we're continuing to scale up online. We're moving into the most exciting iteration of our local store yet. And throughout all of that, I have been ultimately in charge of marketing and marketing uh, management or whatever the official title is. So so I I, got to be honest, Jim, after hearing all that, like I am excited i am hopeful i am that's just awesome and i think it's amazing so congratulations to you guys i think that's awesome (laughs) but how like how does it feel going into your like stage three version three of your store to actually be buying purchasing the land and like building up your own building like how does that feel for Mm -hmm. covenant like you guys as a company that's got to feel great yeah it's beyond great it's um uh, I mean, it, it's people, people talk about things being, you know, it's my dream come true kind of stuff, but this was like a distant, I, I we weren't even thinking in this direction, not even a couple of years ago that it would even be possible yeah. that we could afford to do something like this. And like, um, I mean, we're just at, we're just beside ourselves with thanks and like the, basically I mean, to be perfectly honest, so we've been doing this for 15 years. Um, we've been scraping by for probably eight or nine of those, ultimately. Like, it has not been a, a lucrative thing. Um, like, I moved from a place that with three people living together to a place of four people living together, um, keeping bills low, et cetera. And I had a lot of uh, advantages to be able to do that in my life at the time. And so uh, just to to go through all of that and then to kind of come out the other side now, we thought the pandemic maybe, you know, there was a moment there where we we didn't know if we were going to be able to pay employees. Our, you know, all the asthma day releases stopped. Mm-hmm. None of the subscriptions were firing. So we had almost no revenue coming in and we were like, what are we going to do? Um, and that's when we started streaming and that kind of, that momentum into and out of that phase and a couple of very successful games like Flesh and Blood and Ashes, just really the ball bounced our way on those. Um, we, we were in the right place at the right time 
And uh, we had, I guess, done a lot of the foundational work to be ready to catch any of the balls that did bounce our way. And a couple of them did. And that kind of scaled us up to where we can reinvest that money in the local community and, and building the store of our dreams. So, I mean, I'm super excited. I'm also, to be honest with you, you know, a little bit scared. Right. Um, yeah. yep. it's a different, it's a different idea mm-hmm. of what a store is mm-hmm. and we're investing like a hundred percent into it. Like there's no, there's we're no not like back. kind of half doing it. We're doing it mm-hmm. fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it will either work or we will be wrong about what we think is the future of this industry. And it is kind of exciting to, to be able to actually make that bet. <laughs> and if it goes wrong, you know, I guess we'll sell a really fancy building and uh, keep trying other stuff. <laughs> yeah, because because before the pandemic, I mean, you guys really totally pivoted like 100% with what you were doing. Because, I mean, before that, you guys weren't really doing a lot of streaming, correct? Like once the pandemic hit, you really bounced into streaming almost every day, correct? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. We did it. We had a little bit of experience and Zach was uh, – rightly should be praised for being pretty forward thinking on this. He, he was like, I think we should be streaming. I don't know that it makes sense and I don't know how or why, but it just feels like the thing that we should be doing. And he's a very intuitive kind of uh, person on that level. So mm-hmm. we had started getting the equipment and started kind of getting our feet wet. We'd, we'd done like a couple of streams of like Marvel champions. Um, and we we're streaming like once a week, once a month. And then, yeah, when the pandemic hit, the question basically became, we can't, do much of anything right now. So what can we do that Mm -hmm. could be valuable and and helpful? And Zach and I decided to fully bubble ourselves together with our wives. Um, So the four of us were like isolated um, from anyone else so that we could continue to come in and stream and work together without feeling like we were at risk or or putting each other at risk. So Mm -hmm. yeah, we we started doing that every day because it was just the only thing that, that we could do. And then as so many things happen this way, you're forced to innovate on that because that's where all of your time and energy has to go. So pretty quickly, we figured out how to get remote employees to run the live stream system that we have, how to, you know, remote into various computers, um, you know, continuing to improve the production quality of those streams. Jonathan and Bryce did an incredible job on that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we, you know, we just started honing some of those early streams, like seven, eight hours. Cause it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what else oh, are we going to do? Man? <laughs> yeah, and I, and I honestly, I remember during, the, during those early, those early streams, I was, I, I was on a few of them, like watching them because, um, there, there wasn't a whole lot for me for what I was doing for work to really yeah. do. Um, and it was just, I mean, it, you know, it's nice having people streaming on an, on a computer, mm-hmm right next to you. Yep. It's like, it feels like you're there. Right. <laughs> so like, and how, how do you feel like that paint out? Cause I mean, that had to have been like the right decision for what you, for what you guys should be doing at that time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would say a hundred percent. I mean, I, I don't know in the number of pathways that were available to us, what we ran into is we had been spending most of our time doing uh, very produced videos. Right. So we would, mm-hmm come in and we would uh, record things and then Jonathan would edit them and we post them on YouTube and he had effects and post and all of that. But, you know, he was not in the bubble anymore, so he couldn't come in and film. So our solution was, well, you know, Zach and I can turn on the cameras and we can probably just stream. So, you know, 
looking back now, two years into it, like it's become a, a critical part of the business. Um, mm-hmm. It's become a very important part of what we do on a daily and weekly basis. And I think it's adding a ton of value for people. And we've heard uh, incredible, um, incredible comments that that make us so happy. And like, it just makes us so happy that we were able to be there for people in that kind of a way. Mm-hmm. Um, to be to be very honest, like it was a really lonely time, and I, I think it still is for mm-hmm. a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. And being able to just have a community, even if it's a hundred people, you know, watching an Arkham stream, <laughs> having that on in the background, and just being able to type and have a dialogue with somebody um, is extremely important. And so, even though that element of it might go away over time. Um, the community building element of it and just the ability for us to show what we love doing uh, so much and to get more people involved in the hobby and with our brand, I think it, in retrospect, was a a very important decision that we made, yeah. And it has, in many ways, driven our ability to Mm-hmm. to buy land and, and build a local store, which is kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And and honestly, that that's why I think like YouTube and Twitch and all these live streaming platforms, they really are very valuable. Like they are very valuable community building tools um, and available to anybody. And honestly, like for, for people in tabletop, the tabletop space, I mean, don't, don't sleep on it. Right. Like it's super valuable yeah. and like, I, I feel like they're living proof that that of the communities that can can be built. Um, so one one thing, and I've I actually somebody asked this question on one of the uh, Facebook uh, tabletop groups that I'm a part of. But you'd mentioned um, early, in the early years and not supporting uh, Magic or like Yu Gi Oh. This one's crazy to me. <laughs> how 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 do you operate and run an LGS without or a card shop? Without supporting the big three, yeah. Um, how many? How many people called you crazy? Everybody. I mean, <laughs> the, the, and in fact, so, some people were like, were angry about it. Like they would come that in and be like, me. "Oh, you know, what are you?" And then they'd be like, "No, we no forty k, no magic, no Yu Gi Oh, etc." And it'd just be like, essentially, it was a kind of offensive, like. How dare you? Uh, <laughs> I'm not, like, not, did you guys not have D&D stuff? <laughs> did you guys have Dungeons um, and Dragons? Yeah, no D&D either, actually. So it was it was uh, hipster to the max. <laughs> I'm going right? to head out, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, I'm you know, <laughs> How is it? I mean, so it's exceedingly difficult and, and not really possible on – on a sustainable level, I would say. So we we got through it out of desire because it's just what we wanted to play and what we wanted to share with people. Mm-hmm. But the fundamentals of the economics of you know those systems and the games that you're supporting and selling is it's not in your favor at all if you're not locked into one of those big communities. Right. And I mean, the way we we did it was we had people working for no money or uh, hardly any money, no benefits, uh, no wage growth. Um, you know, those kinds of things. So it was a passion project for quite a while. And again, we were all in a position to be able to do that. Like um, for the longest time, Zach had a separate job, uh, like a healthcare job mm-hmm. for from his, he has his MBA, right? So he was making cash in that way. And, you know, he was able to invest some of that cash to keep things going. Um, I was in a really fortunate situation where my costs were super low and I, I was able to work, you know, for for very little, as did were a couple of other people involved at the time. Jonathan was doing it as a side job, so like, 
it's not like we walked in and said like, ah, oh, this is the better model or anything. It, it wasn't at all like that. But um, over time, we found ways to add value, right? So we added like beer to the store. We focused more. And we'd always focus more on being a play space. Mm-hmm. And so we had a lot of people that would enjoy that. We just weren't able to really monetize it. Right. So we we started adding stuff like that. We eventually got on board with more and more LCGs. You know, Netrunner really took off. X-Wing took off from the FFG line. Um, we had Star Wars Destiny. That was a big kind of watershed moment too where you realize the power, the monetary power of a collectible game and what it can do for your entire operation when that money is coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has expanded up from there. So like – I would say it is not the kind of thing anybody should should honestly do unless you have a really strong passion and a lot of time uh, that you can invest in it that does not have to be compensated, basically. Yeah, my my answer to that question that somebody had was, um, I'm like, well, I mean, I know people who have done it and have made it successful. Um, I mean, it takes a lot of hard work, obviously, but like fundamentally, to me, it makes sense if you're not a part of those communities and you're not playing the game. If you're not playing Magic, if you don't know anything about Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh, it doesn't make I mean, I, I can understand it not making sense to be selling it or supporting it. Mm-hmm. Because if somebody comes mm-hmm. in and asks you a question, I, dude, I don't know, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah, which I makes mean, sense. It, it was just that kind of thing where like we and – it, and it was because we had always just been on the, the second tier of games and communities all throughout – our, you know, our enjoyment of playing games. So like we were thinking of it as this is a place where people like us can come and like not compete like they're, you know, Doomtown, for instance, you can play that and not have to worry about the magic tournament starting and kicking you off the tables or whatever. So we really just had that in our, our heads that like maybe there's enough people that aren't necessarily looking for the the big three experience, but might be looking for like interesting other games to discover. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, there were plenty of those people, and that did work. Mm. Um, but you realize that, you know, like an LCG model or a role-playing game, you're just – if your whole model is revolving around selling products, like an LCG pack might come out once a month at $15. Right. So you got to think about how many players you would have to have in your store mm-hmm. making that transaction to pay even one employee, right. you know, minimum wage. Right, um, right. And we ran up against those things for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I do have to say, Jim, I don't know if you remember, I sent you their stream. Uh, it was later last, I think it was late last year, okay. but you guys were playing uh, Commander Legends oh, for Magic yeah. on yeah. stream. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Like, yeah. we're, we're, so we're big Magic players. We love Magic. <laughs> and I'm just st- sitting there laughing. I'm having such a good time because I'm like, these guys, they've got no idea what they're doing yet. It's great. <laughs> it was so fun, too. I mean, what's crazy is so I, when I was like, you know, probably 11 or 12, I got a big bulk lot of uh, magic cards off eBay with my friend Josh at the time. And it was just like commons and stuff. And we put uh, some decks together and played a bunch and had a great time with that. Mm -hmm. But that was the end of it. I don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. Like I had a great time. And then it was like Zach and I met and we were playing Pokemon at the time. And so I kind of was just playing Pokemon with him and and Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of my magic career, basically. (laughs) Zach had never played, I think, before that commander game. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, and the other piece, so it's important to note too, though, that um, (laughs) he – 
Zach's family, like growing up in Chelsea, was very like traditional, kind of old school conservative. Mm-hmm. And that was a time whenever D and D and magic was like considered evil. Yep. So he, you know, so he he had to be very careful with the kind of games he was mm-hmm. playing and bringing home. Yep. And Pokemon and Star Wars were acceptable in that kind of environment. So that also framed a lot of our early exposure. He didn't play D and D early either for that reason. Po- and I played a ton of it. When Pokemon. I was Pokemon was not acceptable for me. So yeah, isn't that crazy? It, it it is. It's. I mean, it's not crazy to me because I grew up in that environment. So like, yeah, I, understand I, I understand the thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it to me, it's way off base. And honestly, like my parents, even now, they would tell you that. Yeah, they they might have been a little bit, <laughs> a little bit yeah. crazy. <laughs> so I grew up that way. So I get it. I understand. Like for me. Um, I mean, I've been in the tabletop now for five, six years, so mm-hmm. I haven't been in this space as long as you guys have, but I, I certainly know the thinking. And I, so many times I, I've, I've said to Jim, I wish I had been in magic. <laughs> as I mean, I remember when it started. I remember those yeah. early days. Yeah. And I remember going to church and the pastor saying, you should not be doing these because it's all evil. It's um, black magics. <laughs> yeah. The, it was real. I mean, that was a big yeah, thing. It was. It's a it, real thing. It, a lot of people don't know that. It was a big, it, big thing, especially in this part of the country mm-hmm. for us. Yeah. It, it was It was a cultural phenomenon mm-hmm. that, like most cultural phenomenons, phenomenons that happened around that time, really shook they really did. They really shook the Christian conservative community mm-hmm. in ways mm-hmm. that ultimately I think were detrimental to the to a lot of youngsters thinking back then. Um, I, so I think I even remember like a 2020 episode or a, a Dateline episode or something that was like all about you know these people who had gotten involved in Dungeons and Dragons and mm-hmm. had gone all off the rails and it's like uh, that was a real thing. I think it's mm-hmm. the late 80s, early 90s. So that mm-hmm. was a, a yeah. big moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it was a real thing and. I'm just upset. <laughs> the, <And> I'm- <laughs> only, the only, it, it, ju- just because, like, man, I, I could my card collection. <laughs> yeah. I, it was you could have had those black cards. lotuses right now, <laughs> right? Which, which the one just sold uh, last? No, yeah, this Recently. month. This month, one sold a, a black lo- alpha black lotus signed mint gem mint sold for five hundred thousand. I believe the case was signed. Correct. I don't know. Said? Okay. I, I, I'm not sure. Either the case was signed or the card itself was okay. signed. But half yeah. a million dollars. So you got to tell your folks what you missed out on, you <laughs> yeah, know? Right? Oh, my dad knows. <laughs> oh, he knows. <laughs> I was sure to tell him. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, so, 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 all right, so, so going off of that um, a little bit, um, I mean, you guys have been in the industry for such a long time and uh, going through, I, I, I've read your story on your website uh, a lot yeah. just, just because it's, for us, you guys are really huge inspirations mm-hmm. and I enjoy reading that because honestly, it gives me, it gives me hope and inspiration for what we're trying to build. And so um, it, you guys are very much like us, you're, you're big card game players. So how do you think the card game space specifically has shifted in tabletop? I mean, it's because it seems like early on, it was the only card games that were out there were TCGs and CCGs. Um, and then when I got back into tabletop about five years ago, I'm finding out there's so many different kinds of card games. LCGs, I had no idea what an LCG was. Yeah. Um, ECGs in in the same vein, but there's so it seems like there's so many different games, card games out there now. Like how how do you think the card game space has shifted since being in tabletop? Yeah, that's a, a fantastic question. So 
basically the way that I see it is the 90s Magic launched the local retail store, basically, um, the local card shop, because for the first time you had an economic model that could actually support a business uh, through its sale and play. And previous to that, you know, you had some Warhammer 40K stuff, you had some D&D, you had the hobby shop that was selling like paints and historical miniatures and kind of the whole of that experience. But you didn't really have the just economic insanity that was people buying booster packs and booster boxes. So Magic and Pokemon, rightly, um, kind of the originators of that. And Yu-Gi-Oh! eventually comes along, I think, what is it, 98, 99? I think it was a little later uh, for Yu-Gi-Oh! Yu-Gi-Oh! But I can't hit the remember. U.S. in 02. Was it 2002, you said? Yeah, 2002. Okay, yeah, so it was a little later. But so that, anytime an economic model like that kind of shows up out of nowhere, it's kind of a bandwagon, right? So then every publisher who possibly has a reason to print a collectible card game starts doing it. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have Decipher establishes as the secondary card game, has a much more story RPG tie-in, the Star Wars collectible card game, the Lord of the Rings, TCG, Decipher goes its direction. You've got like Warlord and Seventh Sea coming in, and those are are uh, and AEG's offerings as well as like L five R, and then you've got Magic and, and uh, Pokemon continue to do their thing. But across that, you have thousands of games that launch and die within like one or two sets. Mm-hmm. Thousands. I mean, everything. We played the Buffy the Vampire Slayer game recently, Tomb Raider. I mean. Anything that had an IP or even a reason to possibly try to get money out of people's hands became a TCG. Mm-hmm. That lasts for like a decade, and then everybody folds, and every, ah, TCGs, you can't do it. If you're not magic, you're just not going to work if you're not Pokemon. <laughs> um, and then it kind of just dies off for a while until the LCG format comes along, and Fantasy Flight, I think rightly, kind of exposes the idea had been around for a while, but it's basically what if a board game was only cards and expanded a lot? I mean, that that's mm-hmm. whatever, wherever the lines are on that. Um, but they brought it with like big, big licenses, game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings. So that gets people's attention. This idea that they really pushed the brand of like, you don't have to pay to play. Everybody's on equal footing. It's about skill, not, not wallet size. Uh, those kinds of things, easier for casual people to keep up with, you know, all these kinds of benefits, which rightly were benefits at the time, especially. And that launches a different moment where now everything, all these LCGs are coming out on the Fantasy Flight line, where you've got everything from Netrunner to Warhammer Conquest to Star Wars, the LCG, all these things start happening. But what we find during the LCG period is that there's a bunch of downsides to LCGs that that we weren't fully appreciating up front, which is what happens when it's three years later. And you've got a three-year back catalog of cards that if anybody wants to start playing your game, they have to buy three years of back catalog. So now the entry cost to playing Magic might be a sealed event or a draft event, and the entry cost to playing an LCG is three or 400 bucks mm-hmm. if you can even find the old releases. Right. And so all of that turmoil kind of starts to happen and then the LCGs fold kind of one after another and start to lose momentum. And then about that time uh, on the FFG side, you actually see uh, Keyforge come in, unique decks are trying to solve the in-between problem of it's not a TCG, but it kind of feels like a TCG and there's some collectability to it, but you don't have to buy all the cards. You can just buy a couple of decks or 20 decks or 80 decks. It's up to you. And there's a random element involved. So like, you kind of are trying to get the casual audience that also wants the TCG level of experience and support. And so that's happening. And then at the same time, like right now, 
we've got a couple of the LCG model games are still running. Like I think Versus is still like in the ECG LCG category. Mm-hmm. Ashes is brought back from the PDP system through us as a two to three re- uh, months between releases. So there's these non-collectible games that are having this cadence. Then you also have Keyforge gets the algorithm stolen or malware or whatever happened there. Soulforge Fusion comes in as an evolution of the unique game. And I think that genre of card games spins off into a lot of different opportunities. And then most hilarious is you have games like Star Wars Destiny and Final Fantasy and uh, Digimon Flesh and Blood are now coming up as the next kind of the heirs to the TCG throne. Mm -hmm. And what's funny to me is like flesh and blood is saying the new classic trading card game, the new classic TCG. So it's hitting a lot of people who grew up in the nineties era TCGs, Mm -hmm. but are now like wanting a more maybe grown up experience with updated design and mechanics and, and you know, what, what have designers learned about how to design the game from 97 to 2020? Mm-hmm. Can we make a modern incarnation that still feels like opening these, these old packs and feels awesome? Um, so I think we're in the next, I think it's a, this cycle has come back and now there's a new approach to TCGs with an eye on what has worked in the past with updated mechanics and design principles and with Kickstarter for the first time. Right. So mm-hmm. now these TCGs are going big on Kickstarter and then people are like, oh, man, if this is the next magic, I better get the mm-hmm. alpha cards if I can, because what if this one blows up and you're going to see most of them will not. A great majority of them will fail. It's going to be the same thing as in the 90s. But I think some of them will make it through and uh, we get to find out who the winners and losers <laughs> are going to be. So in many ways, it's changed. And in many ways, uh, it's, it's kind of returned right same. back to where it was. Yeah. You know, the funny thing about it is back in the day, Digimon and Dragon Ball Z both had a card game. Yeah. And and those completely flopped back then. Now they <laughs> yeah. came back and now we have another Digimon card game, which is doing extremely <laughs> well, and Dragon Ball Z or Dragon Ball Super card game mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. We definitely have made a full circle. Yeah. Oh, 100%. (laughs) And I mean, I even saw it. So there's this game, this Nostalgics TCG on on Kickstarter. And it's Mm -hmm. just like, it's so opaquely uh, trying to be exactly that nostalgia, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it looks like Pokemon. It plays like Pokemon. You have prize cards. It plays like Pokemon. It's like, so, so much of this throwback stuff is like, it's the same game that you have fond memories of, but we've made the design better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we'll see if there's enough there's enough momentum behind wanting a better game, in air quotes, um, to actually make players switch from one to another, which I'm in many cases, I, don't, I just don't think that's going to happen for most of them. I, mm-hmm. I think it's a lot of it's going to be Kickstarter, go big, one or two sets, and can't support it anymore. Yeah, spe- and speaking of Kickstarter, um, I, I, there's there's been a few games recently that have been announced via Kickstarter, and actually not that long ago, the professor just announced his uh, d- deck box with Gamegenic. Yeah, that's oh, coming yeah. to Kickstarter. Yeah. But and, and the reason I'm throwing that in there is so many people are saying, "Well, why are they doing Kickstarter?" Honestly, like to me, Kickstarter offers so many benefits with the biggest being marketing Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. hype being around something that is being kickstarted. And as as a backer of many different Kickstarters, like I I feel like I feel a little bit of ownership 
mm-hmm. as being like one of the first backers or being a part of that initial community around a product. Mm-hmm. And so I, when whenever I hear why Kickstarter from a big company, I, I kind of laugh at it a little because I think there's so many benefits. The, the benefits far outweigh the cons, the negatives, yeah. in my opinion. I mean, yeah. what, what do you kind of see from the Kickstarter? Yeah, we, we were just talking about that on stream today, actually, the, the Professor's Deck Box. And it's like, isn't Game Genic owned by Asmodee? And it's like, they have all the money. They just got sold for billions of dollars. Like, they could make the, the product <laughs> yeah. themselves. They yeah. could even run a pre-order for the product. But I think you're dead on in saying, like, Kickstarter kind of started as something, and a lot of times things that start as one thing turn into another. Like, Discord is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. And so... Kickstarter is now, as you say, do you want to pay X percent of your total funding to Kickstarter? Like I think it's 10, 15 percent. I can't remember what it is Mm -hmm. to get the marketing and the easy access to a tiered reward system for funding goals. Like that's not easy to do on your own website, right? Right. Right. Um, And I think the answer for most companies is yes. And so if Kickstarter wants to lean into what their platform has become, Mm -hmm. I think that's totally fine and and is not the wrong thing to do. Um, You know, there's this romanticism about like it's for small creators to Mm -hmm. get the word out. But the thing is like it it can still also be that. Mm -hmm. Like it's not an on-off switch, right? So actually having your game genetic deck box on the platform is just getting more and more tabletop people aware of it. Mm -hmm. And so your small game should have a better shot of doing well uh, also. So I think, you know, if it's a platform that can be used a certain way and it's to a benefit that a company finds uh, to be worth the cost, then sure. Yeah. Why not? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so <clears throat> so you, you you bring up uh, KeyForge and uh, now, yeah. now SoulForge Fusion. Now, I remember, um, I, I think I watched your guys' KeyForge videos earlier on when I first started getting back into tabletop. And I, I wasn't immediately sold or convinced on KeyForge. <laughs> so like the, just the, the idea of a unique deck game as a, as a card game player, like I'm... Like for me, I'm like the custom, the customization, the customizability is a big thing for me. Jim, you talk so many times about theory crafting, theory crafting. and, bu- and building much. own decks, your yeah. own decks, right? I am still, and granted, I haven't played Keyforge yet. It's sitting back there. We're gonna play and try, <laughs> even though the algorithm's kind of down right now. But that's okay. You still play, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> So what what is it about Keyforge? Like, what do you guys enjoy about Keyforge, and why should I play it as as a card game player? Yeah, so I mean, it it also just may not be uh, the right fit for you, which, mm-hmm. which for a lot of people that's the case, right? right? So what you're giving up is customization and deck building, and for a lot of people that's a great amount of enjoyment in the space. Right. My, myself included, I love tinkering with decks, right. but. Also, what you're gaining is the ability to feel like you're playing a constructed deck and to have interesting interactions happening at the table uh, immediately after you spend $10 on a unique deck. Mm -hmm. So, like, if I've got a family and I'm busy all the time and I don't have the kind of time I used to 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 sit and, you know, focus on the different lines of play I wanted to and I'm spending 16 hours a day, you know, because I'm obsessing over this stuff right now with Flesh and Blood, like... I'm thinking about combos and lines all the time. Um, But if I've got other things to do and I've got a bunch of other things that are keeping me busy and I can go once a night and walk in, grab a $10 deck and sit down and everybody's on equal footing Mm -hmm. and I don't have to worry about the guy who has the 4X Black Lotus in his deck, 
I can just have an equal, relatively equal playing field, knowing that I have one copy of a deck that nobody else can possibly own. It might be awesome. It might not be great. And I can play with other people who have just engaged with the same. I think that's where the strength of the model ultimately is. I, there's some people that'll buy like a thousand decks or something and try to find the best one. And that's mm. fine. Obviously that that's totally cool, but it's not really where the model shines. I don't think, um, the best, the best model of, or the best way to play a game like Keyforge to me is to gather six to eight people, everybody buy a deck, a totally unique deck, and we have a tournament, mm-hmm. quick tournament. Um, you don't have to spend the time deck building. You already, everybody knows the game. Mm-hmm. If it's three sets later and three years later, it's the same game. So like you don't have to keep up with a bunch of stuff and how ratas have changed and how bands have, have morphed the metagame. There is no real metagame until you get into the deep competitive Keyforge scene. Um, but, you know, it's just a really nice grab a deck and mm-hmm. play, you know, kind of game. So it gets people to the table so fast that for a lot of folks that aren't steeped in collectible card games, the deck building is a giant barrier of entry. Mm-hmm. And you don't know where yeah. to begin, and you don't know how to put your deck together, you don't know the ratios you need and how to run the hypergeometric calculator to find your odds, right? So it's like a really good gateway for people too to kind of explore what it's like to feel like you're playing mm-hmm. a, a traditional card game. That I, I like that. Before we go, Dan. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. If you're sitting down with someone who drops four black lotuses on you. <laughs> uh, I don't know, I don't play. <laughs> First of all, they're cheating. Okay. <laughs> you can only have one in one specific format. All right. <laughs> then it's that, so appropriate. That's also okay, about a hundred grand uh, on the cheap side. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so you don't have to worry about people cheating. You got a unique deck, it has to be legal. There you go. Oh, that that's uh, funny. All right. Uh, but as soon as he said it, I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna wait. <laughs> I will say this also, Dan. If you're uh, curious about this, so Soulforge actually takes this to a different level, and yeah, you actually take two unique next. decks and shuffle them yep. together. Mm-hmm. Um, so you start to actually have a level of customization between that, that uh, really between like. matches, which which solves a lot of those problems. Yeah, and Jim, I don't know. If, uh, do you remember I sent you the Kickstarter for Soulforge Fusion, and yeah. I'm like, this looks really yeah. interesting. <laughs> I ended up not backing it, and then and then I heard your guys's uh, podcast with Justin Gary, and I'm like sitting there punching myself like i why why did i not back it i should have backed her of all i know right right? (laughs) yeah i didn't get it i regret that one (laughs) no but but that was a great conversation that you guys had with just with justin gary Mm -hmm. um yeah uh, you know again for like for us as magic players i i always find it fascinating anytime to sit down with a uh, pro, uh, champion. Yeah. Uh, I think he was a world champion, I think. Um, but he had some really unique insights and like the fact that he was able to sit down with Richard Garfield yeah. and like, <laughs> I, I, I do like how he said when, when Keyforge came out, he immediately called him and was like, dude, what the deal, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh. But, but what was it, but what was it like? What was it like, you know, ha- having a conversation with somebody like that, um, designing, more, more specifically, like a card game that you're that you're now kind of being a part of. Yeah, it, that interview with Justin honestly made just it made me a, a much bigger fan too mm-hmm. of what they were doing. So we we'd had a lot of conversations, just kind of business to business, kind of saying this is something we think would really 
you know, be a good asset to the space right now. Something we'd like to to add to our you know list of games, kind of a curated selection of titles. We think it's worthy. We think there's a, a large demand for this kind of game that now doesn't really have anywhere to go because Keyforge is kind of in the, the hiatus that it's on. So it's like everything was fitting, and we had a lot of good conversations about those kinds of things and about the desire to make Soulforge Fusion uh, X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. But I hadn't really got the full-throated kind of history and mm-hmm. story of Soulforge into Soulforge Fusion, why it mattered so much to him and his company and uh, kind of his experiences to get him to that place. So, yeah, I was hugely, hugely into that interview as well. It's always nice when you're having that kind of conversation and it's just it's just working and you're like, yeah, like I'm really happy that you're as passionate about this as not just I thought you were, but even more than I thought you were. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's wonderful to talk to, to folks like that. I'm always surprised at how different everybody's approaching the space mm-hmm. and how different everybody's looking at the same data and reaching different conclusions as to how best to maneuver uh, within it. Yeah. And I'm also <laughs> always so impressed at how many things Richard Garfield has done Yeah, and how many yeah. incredible, like they're all, they're all great. Mm-hmm. Like it, this is the guy it did Netrunner, like Netrunner I think is probably the greatest card game design wise, maybe ever it did magic of course, which is notable. Um, extremely notable and then if you look at that it's like he just everything he's touching is is crushing like i just can't believe it keyforge soulforge fusion i saw i saw a game i we we were at one of our local game stores not that long ago and i saw we saw this game on it bunny kingdom yeah and we see designed by richard garfield i'm like well if it's got if Richard Garfield designed it, then it's probably going to be good. Jim, we probably need to yeah. get this game. <laughs> I, I remember. One hundred percent. I remember when I was working at Grapple, I was playing this game. I've never played it before. Group of people, I'm like, wow, this is really well designed. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh yeah, Richard Garfield helped make. It. I'm like, that makes sense. <laughs> and like it's always it's so right? good. It's always the yeah. case. And. I'm really impressed that he is able to design so different experiences. Mm-hmm. Like he designed a trivia game. You yeah. know, he designed that battle yeah. bots robot thing. Uh-huh. It's just like every at every turn, it's not just a magic clone kind of experience. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. really pushing yeah. a lot of boundaries, mm-hmm. and I, I appreciate that so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Richard Garfield is like at the top of our interview list uh, yeah. like of dreams. One day. Yeah, one day. <laughs> that, that, that would be awesome. Um, yeah. So Go get um, it. Yeah. <laughs> So um, one of the f- one of the ways that I first discovered your guys' channel was through um, the Transformers trading card game. Um, I, yeah. I was just doing some research, and then the Transformers came up. Um, actually, I think I was in Walmart, and I mm-hmm. saw it, and then yeah. I, I started doing research and found your guys' video. I'm like, this looks really cool. Mm-hmm. And then not that long after, it got canceled. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, you, you, you got, you talk, you talk about playing on the side of the store, right? All the, all the games that were on the side, right? So like, how does it feel when you're playing a game and, you know, like the spoils that, that you, that you talked about mm-hmm. and you guys are really loving it and it, really enjoying it. And then all of a sudden it gets canceled and it dies. Like, how does it feel like even running a store? Like, I can't, I can't imagine how that would feel, but I mean, like just talk about like the emotions you got to be feeling and then like where do you go from there yeah yeah um man you know in the the early ones especially it's 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 just absolutely devastating um mm-hmm. you don't for us at the time too like 
whenever the Star Wars TCG stopped, it, it didn't just like, hey, we're retiring the game. Or we were like 15, 16 at the time, I think. Mm-hmm. And we we were doing very well competitively. Like I remember being 14 and like, you know, beating everybody at the store in these 35-person tournaments and how exciting that was. And we got tickets to Gen Con to compete in the big event. Wow. Um, and like it didn't – it just – they just stopped saying anything. Wizards. Oh, yeah. They just stopped. Um, all the articles were there. Um, there were no new articles. There were no new sets. There was no official announcement of it not being printed anymore. So the excruciating piece of that, and I would mm-hmm. say this to any publisher who happens to be listening, is like we held on to hope for like a year plus yeah. that it was going to come back. Um, same thing happened with Monster Apocalypse. Private Press did the exact same thing. We So much so that they wouldn't, they would literally say, we won't talk about this on camera. We won't talk about this in an interview. Wow. We won't answer the phones, essentially. So we've had that happen more than a, a few times where it just kind of everything goes blank and everything goes dead. And I think those are super hard because you just care so much about something. And it doesn't, you know, it, people can uh, kind of foolishly say, it's just cardboard and those kinds of things. They, they don't understand what actually mm-hmm. happens whenever you get yep. involved in these communities yep. and how important of a, a touch point it is for everybody that is involved mm-hmm. and how important it is to everybody. Um, and so it feels like you're losing a community. You're losing a group of people that bonded together and now kind of go their separate ways. So it's it's never easy and it's never fun. Um, and, you know, we've gotten more mature over time and have kind of, you know, understood that we can still play anything that we want and we still have our collections of old things and we do play those and we got to do the throwbacks on stream and kind of utilize some of these games we've held on to for so long. Um, and we've been through it a lot. So, like, at this point, we kind of understand, uh, you know, the the six five stages of grief or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's never fun. I would just say, like, you know, the way to make it easier is to – from the publisher side, just given that closure is really important, I think, mm-hmm. as, as kind of funny as it sounds. And then secondarily, and this ties into the 3.0 model of our store, is it hurts the worst because stores are currently incentivized to only sell games or to only have people in their store that can play games that they can sell to them, I would say. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, if I roll in with uh, you know a bunch of old games and I'm not paying you anything and I'm just right. sitting at your tables all day and I'm not buying your magic packs or, your, or anything like that, then you're not really incentivized to like want me there. Right. Like you you right. want more Yu-Gi-Oh players and more <clears throat> magic players. You right. don't want me playing you know the spoils from 20 right. years ago, even though right. it's what I love. Mm-hmm. And so I think if the store model and the play space model can change, where it can be profitable, even no matter what anybody's mm-hmm. playing in the store. It yep. doesn't rely on product sales yep. of those games to mm-hmm. be successful. Yep. Um, I think that a lot of the sting would be taken out because it's like, okay, Netrunner stops getting printed. There's always continuing committees and player committees mm-hmm. that try to keep this stuff going. There's always a reason to gather and keep playing with the mm-hmm. cards you have. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's not incentivized in any kind of a public space currently. Right. And that's something we're looking to change. Yeah. And with, with Netrunner, I know that's uh, Project N- Nisei, I, I believe, uh-huh. is, is, is the yeah. name of that one. <clears throat> um, but you hit it right on the head and that is something to where we've actually when we first started sitting down and talking about talking about this is like that's the question for LGSs right is yes you're in, incentivized to have them playing stuff that you can sell them but that's not how you build a community right mm-hmm. and right. that's what i think 
we as tabletop game players desperately want and need is a community and a place to build that community. Um, and so that's what we've been, honestly, from day one, trying to figure out how can we, like that's the problem that we want to solve, right? So so speaking of that, like in your 10 plus years now of having an LGS, like how do you think the tabletop retail space has evolved since you started? Do you, do you still think that LGSs in general are still uninspiring and uninviting? Because I know that some are, but like, do you think that's yeah. the majority or is that the minority now? Um, I, I would still say that's pro- like, I don't want to say a blanket uninviting. I mm-hmm. think, I, I think that they are missing a giant chunk of potential audience with the way that they're presented. Um, I think there's still a lot of, um, you know, unsavory behavior from shop owners and uh, communities that have become fairly insular in, in certain uh places i think just simple stuff like having posters covering your your walls and your windows playing on plastic tables and chairs um you know having unclean bathrooms i think that stuff's still pretty common mm-hmm. um and i think it you know and it's not like a, oh these people are bad or anything it's right. just you know when you're when you have a hobby shop like this you know one person running it is probably just making enough um and so the amount of time and money that they can spend on continuing to improve the space and make it better uh, doesn't really exist most of the time. And, and and there's not a lot of like strong, like boom growth periods for that sector. So it's kind of a, it, it's very an up and down kind of business. New set comes out. If it's a good set, maybe a lot of people buy it. You get right. some cash. <laughs> Otherwise, maybe it's a dud. You're left on dead products. So mm-hmm it's not a glorious life in that kind of a hobby shop environment. So um, there's still a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunities and potential there. I think, you know, the general concept of 90% of businesses failing in their first year, just because they're undercapitalized, they don't have enough startup money to kind of get to that next year Mm -hmm. is, is well exacerbated in this hobby too, just because a lot of it is done out of passion. Like that's the same way we started was we loved it. We wanted to share it. We didn't come in with a, a genius business plan or anything like that. We just started doing it. And I think a lot of hobby shops get into that situation where you started running your magic nights and then you started a shop. And now it's like doing enough to like make a living, but you can't really invest over much past that. And then, I, th- you know, so that's still there. But we've seen – I think we've seen some very good growth in a lot of different areas in terms of like diversity and cleanliness and being a welcoming community. Um, and the board game cafe model, I think, is the newest to hit the scene. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that's the uh, ideal direction for a certain branch of the hobby uh, audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is one audience that enjoy it. Like the board game cafe model serves a, a great role, I think. Mm-hmm in introducing a lot of otherwise non-interested people to the idea of playing board games and enjoying that. And I think a lot of people that do play board games enjoy going to a place to have a good drink, a good, a good meal while they do so. But I, my concern with that and why we're not pursuing that as directly is that um, I don't really want it to be this is a cafe or a food place that happens to have board games as a reason for you to come. Right. Um, I also think you're going to be competing with the vast majority of 
hard, already hard business, which is food and drink service. Yeah. Yeah. Like those restaurants are already hard enough. So you're competing with those people and you have to have the essentially kind of the, the, the shtick of board games as the driving force behind why people are there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of just reverence and, and really enjoying the hobby for what it is, not as a side project of your, your dining experience, I am very much more excited about what it looks like when a store is more of a play space and more of an environment where people can come in and uh, have plenty of space to do what they want to do, host communities, play whatever games they want to play, um, and really just get away from this old idea that it's a retail space and move more into an idea that it's a gathering space. Mm-hmm. And what it looks like whenever that model ultimately comes to fruition. And, and we, we're going to start hitting at it. I don't know if we'll nail it on the first try, right. um, but we're definitely going that direction. And I, honestly, I think if you're a retailer and thinking like more and more people are going to be buying their games online over the next year after year, like that's just the way it's going to be. So your value proposition continues to get worse and worse over time, especially right. if you're at MSRP. Right. Right. So how important, one thing you mentioned uh, on today's stream, I, I think you had said somebody had had uh, discovered your Lord of the Rings uh, playthroughs of the LCG and you had a, you've got, you've got, you've got a bunch of playthroughs of that game on your channel. And one thing you said is it was, it's nice to have like 15 plus years of back <laughs> yeah. catalog on YouTube. Like how important do you think YouTube and platforms like it, video creation and video content in general are to this, um, this space, this tabletop space. Do you think it's, it's moving forward? Like it's going to be part of one thing that honestly, like if you're running a shop or like a business, you definitely should consider doing some type of video content like that. Do you think it's that important? Yeah, man, that's a a great question. Um, the, I hate when I'm interviewing somebody and they say like, it depends on the business or whatever. Cause I, I would love to speak more in absolutes cause it's way more exciting, <laughs> but it, it does. So like, I think there's a lot of marketing mistakes that currently happen with people thinking that they need to be on every platform and they need to try to get the word out in every way possible. And right. they, and they spend so much time on that, that they're not actually crafting a, a good value proposition for their business, mm-hmm. engaging with their community in a real way and deciding like, where do I actually want to be? And I want to be there well, rather than being everywhere media, like in a mediocre way. Mm-hmm. So for some people, I think YouTube would make sense. I think it depends on, you know, do you have access to equipment? Can you afford equipment? Do you, do you want to be on camera? Mm-hmm. Like, do you, do you have people who are actually enjoyable to be on camera? Um, or is that just a nerve wracking experience for everybody? And so mm-hmm. maybe we shouldn't go that direction. Maybe we're going to just own Twitch or maybe we're going to own Facebook or maybe we're going to own like uh, local door to door advertising or, you know, go advertise at universities and host all of our, spend all of our time like hosting game nights at universities and local bars. Like there's a lot of different ways to get the word out. I would say if you're doing online business, it's going to be very difficult for you to get discovered and get a following and an audience if you don't have significant outreach that can, that can hit a lot of people at once. Mm-hmm. Um, cause everybody's going to be selling for the same prices right. and like, you're not any different and everybody can package up a box. So there are advantages like us, like we're very prompt, very fast. We have our system, like systems outlined. So we have some advantages over, uh, other, other folks in that direction, but 
I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to get online and look for the next magic box or whatever, and it's going to be available in a million places. Yep. And a YouTube channel is one way where if you can, content marketing, right? If you can get enough people interested in your content, that is an opportunity for you to talk to them more about other things that you might be doing. So if that's the game for you, I think YouTube slash Twitch is probably it. And a good produced video right now, at least, is just as good as a live stream, um, especially if you can spend the time to make it really good so it gets viewed by a lot more folks. Right, right. So um, one thing that you guys have on your story, right, is you say, uh, you know, we ultimately realized that our purpose is to connect people. Looking at our own histories, we had mistakenly brushed over how meaningful and life-changing these game experiences actually were. Um, That, like, hit home, like, for me, because I'm like, yes, 100% there. And, like, for us, thankfully, I think we realized that, like, early, early Mm -hmm. on for us. Um, so like, what's one of the biggest things that you guys have learned in 10 plus years of building team covenant that you would want somebody else to know right up front if they're moving in a direction like you guys are? Yeah. Um, another, another really, uh, excellent question. So I think one of the most important things to me, at least, is starting with this idea that it is about community and connection. And I think that's becoming more common as the hobby is maturing. And, um, yeah. you know, that's that's becoming kind of the rallying cry of a lot more folks out there. We're realizing how important it is to actually be with other people face to face. And I think that's becoming more and more prevalent as we get segregated digitally and we get in our little Facebook silos or, or Instagram silos or whatever TikTok's up to now, um, that we're kind of like scratching an itch temporarily, but what we really want is to engage with people in a fulfilling way and a meaningful way, Mm -hmm. uh, and not just have sound bites and, and enraging news thrown at us all the time. And I think it's also really important socially that we engage with each other as people like face to face where we're not just caricatures of this or that, you know, person who thinks this or a person who thinks that, and we could just fight online with with sentences that don't actually mean anything. <laughs> so that's going to become more prevalent. I would say on that side, you need to ask yourself as a brand, and I use that term in a very like non <laughs> non uh, marketing way, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. as an entity or as a group or as mm-hmm. a person you really need to establish what it is that you're here to do. Uh, and it and it can't just be like, I'm here to connect people, right? Like that's, everybody's kind of got a version of that. But right. what are you specifically focusing on? What are you offering people that is going to contribute to to that goal? And once you have that that purpose, that kind of framework, like stick to it mercilessly. Mm-hmm. Like at every single turn, make decisions that are pursuing that rather than, you know, the easy dollar here or there or the lazy way out or, you know, or those, those kinds of things, you have to know really who you are and and why you're here. And then you have to make the hard decisions to keep pursuing that vision of what you're offering people, even when it is very difficult to do so. Um, but I will say more and more, I think the authenticity of that approach hits with people Mm -hmm. and, We've seen so much fake over the past decade that whenever people are actually doing something they care about and believe in, it shows and it and it makes us all want to kind of be behind them more as well. Mm-hmm. So 
know what you're doing, know who you are, and then just be ruthless <laughs> about reinforcing that. All right. Well, I don't know, but that, that, that's, that's great, Stephen. I really appreciate that. Um, so before we go, um, so we, we talked about your recent episode on your podcast, uh, which yeah. is the Covenant Cast, I believe. That's the name of it, correct? That's right. Yeah. So it's the Covenant Cast episode 198, I believe. Um, you Guys, if you're listening to this, definitely go check it out. It's a fantastic conversation. Um, and after you listen to the podcast, you should subscribe because they've got great <laughs> Great conversations about every week. Um, I know I've got some that I got to catch up on, but uh, <laughs> so so Stephen, for for people who want to kind of follow what you guys are doing, where can they find you on the internet? Yeah, they can find us on TeamCovenant.com uh, until we finally get the technology company in, I think, Austin, who owns Covenant.com to sell us that domain. We've been trying to get it for 10 years now, and they just won't budge, and it's devastating. But you can find us on TeamCovenant.com, and everywhere in the footer should get you to the various places, the social channels. Um, our Discord is really popping. It's a great place to be. Uh, a lot of wonderful people having real conversations about things. Um you can find that on uh, the footer of our website as well. You can catch all of our live streams. We do Monday through Thursday, every day, go live at 1.30 p.m. Central, and we play all sorts of games. Uh, you can find that youtube.com slash Team Covenant. It's all, it's all out there. If you Google anything about us, you should be able to find it. And then uh, monetarily, at least online, our, our biggest uh, piece is the subscription service, where if you like an expandable game that we support, um, you just sign up, and then we send charge a card and send you every new release for that game, uh, trying to hit release day delivery on those. So that's really one of the big value-added services that we've got. And it's uh, very, very convenient, speaking as a <laughs> subscriber. It is very convenient. Oh, thank you so much, Sam. That's great. <laughs> yeah, one of those boxes of flesh and blood. Right? Through over there. Oh, the flesh and, oh, the flesh and blood? That's yeah, right the here. the flesh and blood. <laughs> so, um, that's all right. so cool. All right, well, Stephen, thank you very much, and uh, – We'll hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, I'd love it. Thanks, guys. Dude, that that was one of the best conversations yeah. I feel like we've ever had on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, like they can only be worse after that one, right? <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. Don't think no, so. right, right. But that was Stephen. Thank you so much. That was uh, fantastic. I've been looking forward to this chat for uh, about a month. About a month now. For about uh, an entire year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Um, that was a <laughs> lot of fun. Uh, Jim, what'd you think? Yeah, that was great. Uh, he has so much information yeah. about this space. And mm-hmm. it's just it, being able to pick his brain yeah. is just amazing. Yeah. Um, and one thing I don't think I really touched on, but just the power of the internet. Um, you know, when we he, we talked about when the pandemic hit, they had to shift their entire business model, mm-hmm. right, and pivot into doing daily live streams. Um, yeah. the 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 internet makes so many things possible that weren't possible before. So you have the internet, and then you know the digital age, coupled with tabletop. Like you've got two like the dichotomy, right, mm-hmm. of digital and tabletop. You know, just on on the surface is so they're so different but the power of integrating the digital and tabletop like there's so much inherent power there and like team covenant has done an amazing job building what they've built over the past decade plus um and it's for me being in the space um you know only five or so years it's just an amazing story and for us uh for us, you know, I, I, sa- I said this during the podcast, but it gives me so much hope 
gives me so much hope and I'm gives me so much excitement for the possibilities that we have and what we can do. Um, I think it's just, it's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, so Steven, thank you so much. And I look forward to having you on again, uh, just to, to talk with you. So play some magic. Yeah. (laughs) 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 All right. So, um, yeah. So Jim, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah. You guys can find me on Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, pretty much anywhere at Jim Morgan, H and H. You can find me on Twitter at underscore DG Campbell and on Instagram at daniel.g.campbell. And then you can find Hobbies and Happiness on just about every social media platform. You just go to hobbiesandhappiness.com and you can find pretty much all of our links there. So, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, Looking forward to the next one. (laughs) But, uh, Jim, thanks for being here and we'll catch you in the next episode. See you, everybody. Take care.